Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. I'm Lenny Antonelli and with me in studio today are Marie Boren, Jared Cunningham and Trina O'Connell. On this episode of the show, we talk to Belfast native Dr. Stephen Myers, Director of Accelerators and Technology at Physics Research Centre CERN. He tells us about particle acceleration, the hunt for the Higgs boson, and whether particle acceleration could create a black hole and swallow the world. We also visit the Irish Science Teachers Association's annual conference and hear about how watching a lizard decapitate a chicken could make science interesting for kids. And we'll be discussing Trina's latest read, Cooking for Geeks, a great geek introduction to food science. Okay, so first up on the show today, we've got some weird and wonderful science news. Uh, Marie, I believe you've got a story about why we ignore things that are right in front of us, and another about mapping the human brain. I do indeed. So if you've ever wondered what makes people better at multitasking than others, you'll be interested in this new research from psychologists at the University of Utah in the US. They're using the famous invisible gorilla experiment, which was created by Harvard scientists Christopher Chabry and Daniel Simons. And they discovered why some people are more prone to inattention blindness or not seeing what's right in front of your eyes if you're in deep concentration. Now, these Utah psychologists played the gorilla video and it asks people to concentrate on the basketball players passing around a ball and count the number of passes. And during this scene, a person in the gorilla outfit comes out, looks at the camera, beats his chest and walks off again. Now, the original study in 1999 found that 42% of participants never actually saw the gorilla. And the new research has built on this, and it found that 42%, uh, these 42% have a lower working memory capacity and a less flexible focus than those who spotted the man in the monkey suit while getting the number of passes correct. So this research can be applied to real-life tasks where being able to spot unplanned events while deep in concentration, such as a person stepping out into the street in front of your car. Okay. I have to ask, did you see the gorilla when you first watched it? I don't know if I, I... I never got to you. My sister is a psychologist and she told me about it. I have to say, I, sh- I showed the video to a few friends of mine and they've always seen the gorilla. So I've never, really? I'm, I'm waiting to meet someone who doesn't see the gorilla. Here. Tell us about the, the project to map the human brain. Yeah, will do. The Allen Institute for Brain Science in the US has released the world's first anatomically and genomically comprehensive human brain map. This is an interactive 3D map that can be explored and navigated much like a GPS navigation system. And it's got o- over 100 million data points indicating gene expression and underlying biochemistry. And the model was created by mapping out the biochemistry of two normal adult human brains. And they've done enough research to show that most human brains are genetically similar enough that this will actually give an overall indication of the the average human brain. So this complex interactive brain will serve as a powerful research tool for scientists looking to explore how disease and trauma can affect specific areas of the brain. It will also be possible to model the effect of drugs on the human brain and identify how disease, physical brain injuries and mental health disorders physically affect the brain. The Allen Human Brain Atlas is free and available to scientists, physicians and the education community as an online public resource. So if you go to www.brain-map.org, you'll get all the details there. That sounds that sounds fascinating. Um, I've got a story about, about biodiversity. Um, Ireland is currently home, we now know, to 31,000 known species um, of animals, plants and fungi. That's according to the first ever compre- comprehensive audit of Ireland's biodiversity, which was coordinated by the National Biodiversity Data Centre. Of these 31,000 species, 11,000 are insects, and about 3,000 of these are flies. So basically about 10% of the known species in Ireland are flies. I think another 3,000 are in the group of bees, um, wasps, and ants. We've also got around 6,000 species of fungi, so they make up about 20% of our known species. Um, Amphibians and reptiles are the least represented group, with only six species. The study estimates that there are another 10,000 or so species still to be discovered in Ireland, and they reckon that about 7,000 of these will be algae or fungi. 
But the conservation status of only 13% of our species has been assessed, and among these, some of our bees, water beetles, and butterflies are regarded as being the most at risk of extinction. Wow. So you tell me slime and mushrooms are basically most of Ireland's yeah, biodiversity. Pretty much, yeah. And, and lots of flies. We and have lots, lo- and lots, lots of, of flies, flies and lots of bees. Now, Jared Cunningham was with us in the studio today for the first time. Uh, Jared, you went down to the Irish Science Teachers Association's annual conference last week, I believe. That's right, yeah. They're, uh, it's their 50th year this year, although it's actually only their 49th anniversary, uh, 49th conference. Uh, they had to cancel one of them because of the uh, foot and mouth alert a few years ago. And while I was there, I spoke to the association's chairperson, Yvonne Higgins. This is our uh, 50th year of the association, but it's our 49th annual general meeting. And what the ISDA does is they provide continuous professional development opportunities for science teachers all around the country. We have just under a 1,000 members at the moment, and that's rising. Um, And we have 14 very active branches all around the country as well. Um, That's full geographic um, areas covered and during the year each of those branches would maybe have five to six local branch meetings throughout the year um, dealing with different issues like we'll say um, exam papers and marking schemes junior search science quizzes senior science quizzes this year is the international year for chemistry so my own branch and the Sligo branch we're having a meeting now next week um, to celebrate the IYC and the title of the lecture is Saving the World with Chemistry and that's given by one of our local lecturers in the IT in Sligo so um, we're actually the largest subject association in the Republic and definitely the most active as well yeah. Okay. You have uh, nationwide activities as well for Science Week every year. Uh, our Science Teacher Awards the last three years um, have been given to HDIP students. Um, they've been nominated by their respective um, teacher training colleges to different universities around the country um, based on their excellence in the classroom. And um, we've had 12 awards each year for the last three years. This year now we changed it um, to basically reward um, practicing teachers who have you know, given a lot of inspiration to other teachers around the country over a long period of time. And we had uh, four finalists who presented yesterday at a seminar and just the standard was just incredible. It was really inspirational. But um, there's all the stuff that's going on in these schools around the country you have SciFest, Young Scientist they're doing science clubs there's, you know, they have horticultural gardens, they have um, tourists coming in they have guest speakers you know, cutting edge, SFI, Science Foundation Ireland funded speakers coming into schools um, trips to the barn for two days building fresh water uh, ecosystems, salt water ecosystems within the schools and it's just mind-blowing and this is all done extra you know so I think uh, it's just fantastic to see so much going on and the professionalism and I suppose especially at the moment um, when there are so many changes in the economy it's great to see there's so much dedication and um, commitment to science education yeah uh, just, just mentioned at the end there yeah. uh, changes in the economy. There's mm-hmm. also some changes will 
presumably be coming along soon in the science syllabi. There yeah. is, yeah. Um, the Leaving Cert Physics, Chemistry and Biology syllabi are under review at the moment. And we have, it's one of the benefits of being a member of the Irish Science Association is that we have representatives on the NCCA, so on the course committee. So all our members will have a direct voice to these changes in the uh, syllabi. Um, I know it's early days and they still have to produce the drafts, but would there be anything in particular that uh, science teachers would be hoping to see? Well, I suppose the biggest change is really going to be the second mode of assessment. So science subjects are by their nature practical subjects, but up until this point, um, the practical aspect of it hasn't been examined apart from you know, answering questions on the exam paper. So there will be a second mode of assessment, but we would, we're not sure exactly what form that's going to take. There are a few different modes that have been suggested, um, but we would welcome a practical, practical element to the examination for our students because we do advocate obviously practical, the practical aspect of the subjects so that's something um, that we would welcome okay. yeah. Would there be new topics that you would be interested in seeing coming onto the curriculum um, in breaking science like uh, things like uh, climate change, for example, is becoming a very hot topic at the moment. Would there be any other subjects? That well, I think like you know a lot of our, a lot of that would already be on the mm. current chemistry syllabus, and I think even the current uh, biology syllabus. I don't think there's going to be a huge change in the content as such. You know, there will be some changes, um, but I suppose science. It is. It's, the syllabi are reviewed quite regularly, mm. so they are kept up to date. You know, so I don't. It's even the current syllabus that we're currently teaching uh, was only introduced, we'll say, within the last ten years. Anyway, so they are kept fairly up to date. Yeah. So already we're teaching issues related to genetics and neuroscience. They're introducing nanoscience to the chemistry, physical sciences. We're not sure. So I, cu I couldn't really comment then, as I don't. I'm not sure what. Well, uh, they'll actually be on the NCCA website. We would hope in in May. And as said, we have our we'll have our council meeting the seventh of May in Dublin, so we'll be discussing it then. You're a biology teacher, mm -hmm. uh, also physics teachers, uh, chemistry mm -hmm. teachers here. But I one of the great events yesterday mm -hmm. was Dave Jungle, mm -hmm. and uh, Dave's. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't make it to that one. <laughs> oh, oh, you, <laughs> you had a wonderful time. He's yeah. a, a, a tall, cheery chap with uh, Mick Wallace blonde curls yeah. and lots well, of really scary lizards. Actually, uh, I can imagine the, it would go at the seminar yesterday. You know, a number of the schools that were presenting at that actually have had that actual presentation brought into their school, and the students they had photographs of the students, you know, holding the, the snakes, and uh, then they had a lizard that was fed a chicken as well, and I think <laughs> decapitated the poor chicken. They had it on video. Yeah, <laughs> so that created huge enthusiasm within the classrooms. Yeah, so what I was talking about was that the guest speakers and the tourists—that's the kind of thing that they would have come in. They would have had another guy that was um, dressed up as Galileo, uh, acted as Galileo, and the students got to interview him. And, um, so it really was bringing, you know, even historical, scientific figures to life for the students. Science teaching wouldn't be limited just to second level. Would you have members who are primary teachers? We do have a primary, yes, and there was there were lectures yesterday to cater for our primary members as well. And actually, even at that, I keep going back to that seminar, but because it was just outstanding, a lot of the um, schools there mentioned that they would run um, science quiz for their local primary schools as well and bring in, even in my own school now, um, I know that when 
the primary school kids come in for our open day that the science labs are the highlight of their day because it's almost like a, a magic display for them all the chemistry and um, experiments they just absolutely love it they're always dying to get in and see the dissections what are we going to <laughs> dissect today so it really is um, I suppose really gets their interest especially the younger the younger students they absolutely love that and I assume you're planning some special events next year to mark the 50th conference. Yeah, well, my vice chairperson, Mary Malahi, who is also a chairperson of the Dublin branch, has already got the wheels in motion for that. It's going to be held in Trinity College in Dublin and the Science Gallery also. As well. So the event will run over a weekend from the Friday to um, Friday and Saturday night in Trinity College. And we're hoping to have a lot of very high profile lectures for that and it's also a city of science so not only is it our 50th uh, meeting but it's also Dublin city of science as well so it's a doubly important year really for science education community in, in Ireland. Now, for those of our listeners who give a Higgs boson, Marie, I believe you met someone quite interesting this week. I did indeed. I was talking to Dr. Stephen Myers, and he's Director of Accelerators and Technology at CERN. And he was talking to me about whether it actually matters if the elusive Higgs boson particle is found. Plus, he was also pointing out why CERN employs far more engineers than particle physicists. Um, maybe if we can start off, um, Stephen, and if you could briefly explain to our listeners why CERN is looking for a theoretical particle and why it would be so important to prove its existence. Well, it's not just one theoretical particle, it's um, pushing forwards the frontiers of knowledge of where we came from, what the forces are, etc. So it's really an understanding of trying to have a complete understanding of what happened just after the birth of the universe. How much do we understand now? Have we got a long way to go? (sighs) That's a good question. There's a model called the standard model, which is very, very complete with Probably the most important missing factor is what is the mediator of mass. We all know there's mass, and this is why this uh, Higgs particle has been called the the Holy Grail and so on. If there's not a Higgs particle, as has been postulated, then there there will have to be something else. So what we're hoping is either we find the Higgs or we find the something else. How do we know when we find it? Uh, it has a certain signature, uh, it has many signatures, and the, the theoretical physicists know what what, how, it, how the Higgs can be created, and these detectors, which I explained tonight, will measure the properties of all of the particles which are produced during a proton-proton collision, and then they will analyze that, and if it fits uh, with the signature, then they will collect data, and when they're absolutely sure that the signal is much stronger than the noise, then they will be able to declare a uh, discovery. Does it matter that much if we don't find the Higgs boson? Um, probably to this man in the street, he wouldn't care whether we find it or not, but um, it's very important to the, first of all, to the thousands of physicists or particle physicists around the world, but also. I think very important when you're teaching children in school that they understand to the final level, you know, that what the physics of the creation of the universe was. I mean, I think it's, it's incredible that we, as a little speck in the universe, can have the brain power and can set up machines that will allow us to understand what started the whole thing. So somehow, for, other, for me, it seems just incredible. If we're you just think that little dust mode. We're just that little <laughs> nothing, and we have enough brains to work out, build machines, and, and, and have enough brain power 
to try to understand how the whole thing started. I think that is it's intriguing and, and exciting, and I think it must be a stimulus for children to be to be thinking about physics, thinking about scientific subjects, and I think that's what, what, what the world needs at the moment. Is there plenty more work at CERN if we find the Higgs boson? Oh, you know, there's always work. Uh, when you find something, you know, it means there's another two things that opens the door to another two things that you need to find. And if you look at the history, we've been building accelerators for the last 80 years. That's not to say that, you know, maybe we'll have to be a little bit more selective and start chasing uh, more selectively because these machines are, of course, becoming more and more expensive. And during your talk, you had mentioned that we might be looking for something else at CERN, another dimension. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I'm not the specialist <laughs> in that. and I'm, This is uh, one of the theories which, which predicts another dimension. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not the specialist on that. As you heard from the talk, I'm the person who takes care of the accelerators. and um, that's you, uh, A theoretical physicist should give you a better answer than I would. And speaking of theoretical physics, this seems to, this is obviously um, the, they're the key words when people think of CERN. But you mentioned engineering. Is that not as big a feat um, of engineering as it is of particle physics when you think about the work that goes into CERN? Well, not many people realise this, but practically 90% of CERN's budget goes into accelerators, which is engineering. And the number of engineers at CERN greatly, or, or physicists working as engineers, greatly outnumber the number of theoretical physicists or even uh, experimental physicists. CERN is predominantly an engineering endeavor because of, this, because of the, the magnitude of the projects which we have to take care of. Wow. And can I ask you a question? It's, a, it's an engineering question, really. People think of CERN, they think of um, circular accelerators. You mentioned linear ones. What's the difference, and do they work together? They all work together, and in fact, there's a very interesting project for the future called the Linear Collider. Um, the pre oh, so it takes a, a little bit of explanation, this. Um, first of all, we have linear, linear accelerators in the chain of accelerators. You need, a, you need these in the, in the early, but these are usually low energy accelerators. What, what has been realized recently after this LEP machine was that even with these incredibly large circumference machines, the energy lost when you bend electrons or positrons is very high. And that LEP was probably the last um, electron-positron collider that will ever be built. The reason for that is the, the electrons don't like to be bent, so the idea has come up, well, let's let them go straight. If you want to let them go straight, you have to make them incredibly, the, the, you have to make the cross-section of the beam incredibly small, and incredibly small means like nanometers, uh, even down to angstroms, in order that you can get the luminosity, which is the rate in the detector. It also means that you have to have very, very strong accelerating fields because when you have a circular accelerator, you give it a little kick every turn, so you're giving it millions of kicks to increase the energy. In a linear collider, you get one pass, and then you have to give it all the energy in one pass, so you need very, very strong um, accelerating fields. So that has been worked on for the last 15 years at CERN. There's a project called CLIC. There was also a proposal called the International Linear Collider, ILC, which is sitting waiting. Both of these projects are sitting waiting on the results to come out of the LHC to see which energy the linear collider should be built at. Wow. Got it. 
And I didn't even know there was a linear collider <laughs> until tonight. And can I ask you one final and maybe a bit silly question? But um, a l- there was a lot of media attention about CERN last year and people saying that um, it could create a black hole that would swallow the universe. Can you, can you tell me what your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, <laughs> we've given this a lot of very careful consideration because you, you must do that. But the, the, the simplest argument against it, which I have, is that cosmic rays, which are coming day after day, if, if the LHC was going to cause black holes, which would cause the end of the universe, cosmic rays would have done it 100,000 billion times already. So that's the straightforward answer. But we, we, we put a group of um, the world-renowned theoretical physicists on this, and they've written a very comprehensive paper, which I could have... Sh- I was expecting this question tonight, and I have the reference in my slides to this, this paper. Uh, it's a very complete paper, and it gives a very, very good explanation as to why this is not a possibility. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Stephen. And on this week's show, our Culture Corner has a bit of a culinary flavour. Trina, I believe you've been reading a book called Cooking for Geeks, Real Science, Great Hacks and Good Food by Jeff Potter. Um, What can you tell us about it? It is brilliant. It basically explores cooking, the science behind cooking, all from the aspect of being a programmer or a geek and understanding how things should be measured and controlled. And it's brilliant. And it covers everything from calibrating your oven which you can do quite easily with a bowl of sugar because it melts at particular temperatures and you can demonstrate that the thermostat in your oven is probably wrong. And there's also other things about proteins denaturing at certain temperatures so you know how to make the perfect steak or perfect egg if you don't eat steak. What happens when a protein denatures? What does that mean? Uh, Proteins normally are in a particular shape so they might be globular or they might be string-like and when you denature them they change their shape which will change their texture and consistency. So different proteins have different functions. So collagen is the one that we can get injected into our body if we're into that sort of thing. But what you're more likely to come across it in is tough pieces of meat. And it's what makes the thing tough. But as you cook it for a long time, like in a steak or in a stew, you like stew, it's nice, it's all very soft. You turn the collagen from being a stringy, tough protein into this lovely denatured gel so it all falls apart. You know, Sounds tasty, yeah. Isn't it delicious? <laughs> and... That's, that's one of the things. And then you get proteins when they denature, you don't like them. So in a steak, you have myosin and actin. And they denature at two different temperatures. So at one temperature, you get a lovely steak. And at the other temperature, you've got this overcooked, tough leather. And it's about finding the perfect balance between them. But understanding it helps you to understand how you're cooking. So even things like eggs. So we all like a soft yolk. Most people like a soft yolk. People who don't like a soft yolk, we, we don't talk about them. And But everyone likes their white set. You do. You like your white set. It's true. And because the egg white and the egg yolk set at two different temperatures, you can cook your egg at that middle temperature to allow your egg white to set, but your yolk to stay soft and kind of puddingy. And it's just amazing. And he goes into how if you really want to, you can actually build your own perfectly thermostatically controlled. This is where the hacks part comes in. And if you've any interest in hacking technology together, it's a brilliant idea. I'm really hanging to modify my slow cooker so it's perfectly temperature controlled. It would be amazing. So have you tried any of the recipes in the book yourself yet? Not yet. No, I actually, I must admit, I read um, cookbooks cover to cover. 
I have so many cookbooks at home that I've cooked one or two recipes from and admittedly I am much more of a reader of cookbooks. Now there's a few recipes in that I do want to start into, including the first recipe which is uh, hot chocolate. Now would, th- would this be the kind of stuff that um, the likes of Heston Blumenthal um, are applying in their kitchens or does this take, or does this book even take it to a whole other level beyond that? It doesn't even take to that level as such. Um, some of the chapters towards the end involve doing things with strange enzymes like the Heston Blumenthal style but a lot of it is about making geeks comfortable in the kitchen. So if you're afraid of the kitchen you're not going to go there. You're going to order pizza. Do you think geeks are afraid of the kitchen? Some of them are, definitely. From my social circle of friends, there are a lot of people. I, I make bread. I like making bread. It's really enjoyable. And a lot of people think I'm crazy and amazing and wow for making bread. Whereas, realistically, I'm just allowing some gluten fibres to kind of form and make nice long stringy things to catch the air when the bread rises. And the science behind it's quite interesting. And what I find is once you've been explained the theory behind the cooking, it makes it a lot easier to experiment and you're also a lot you understand what you're expecting and how to get to what you want so as regards bread making I read a brilliant book there two years ago called Bread Matters and the first third of the book there was a recipe in sight it's all about understanding how to make bread and now I make beautiful bread you'll have to try it sometime and so cooking for geeks is the same kind of you need to be familiar with what's in your kitchen and you need to be familiar with your ingredients and you need to know how your ingredients change as you apply heat to them or as you apply vinegar to them or you apply salt or crazy weird enzymes like transglutaminase, which he mentions in the later chapters. Tell us about that. That sounded interesting. It's pretty cool. It's um, essentially meat glue. So the enzyme... Tasty. The enzyme denatures the protein on either side and allows them to cross-link, and it essentially binds two completely different proteins. So if you really want, you could make a fish-chicken combo where you put the transglutaminase between the two, stick them together, and you've got... I sense the kernel of an idea here. or chish, or whatever you'd like to call it. And it's such a great way of making these bonds that if you try to rip it apart, you'll just break the fish up rather than break the bond. And it's in use these days. So if you want to get lots of chopped chicken and form perhaps a chicken nugget from it, you basically apply this to kind of make it all go together. And because it's a protein, it's not harmful to you once you've cooked it. It's the same as any other piece of meat. like So it's an interesting tool like that. You may not be happy buying reformed chicken nuggets. I like them. They, they taste good. I'm boring on them. Um, but to be able to do it at home in your own kitchen would be pretty cool. And just even to understand how it all works, I think, is deadly. And But he covers loads of other things like understanding the difference between cooking and baking. So when you can cook, you can add splashes. And I know a lot of people, you're afraid of putting splashes. I'm af- I don't like silly splashes, yeah. I, I, when I'm cooking something, I need to know in, in, in millimetres or milliliters exactly how much yeah. I'm supposed to add. Baking is for you. So he's, he actually goes through... So I'm not, a, I'm not a cook, I'm a baker. You should, you should start baking. Or like brownies. You need to start in brownies. They're very easy. But he, he noticed the difference between you kind of, if you look at a recipe, there are these kind of error tolerances. And he actually calculates the error tolerance on a recipe. So some recipes allow you to be five grams over and under. Some allow you to be 50 grams over and under, depending see, on what you're making. they should be in cookbooks. I want to see error tolerance. You error. need this cookbook. <laughs> it's really good. And I don't know. I personally, I don't have so much of a fear of the kitchen, but I love understanding the workings behind all these things. And it's great to understand where your egg yolk's set. So I really love a soft runny egg yolk and I understand how I can get that. Or, you know, if you want really shiny chocolate, you have to temper it. And it's all very complicated. But he actually explains why tempering works by setting different fats at different temperatures. So this is how you get shiny, shiny chocolate rather than just regular kind of dull chocolate. It's called tempering. It's very fancy. You become a chocolatier. Bring in chocolates to us in the studio. When you bring in the bread. I will.
That's deal. a deal. Yes. Apologies to our listeners. If you'd like to make your own bread, you can email us looking for the recipe. <laughs> That's almost it for this week's show, but we just have time to tell you about a few science events that are coming up. The new science gallery exhibition, Human Plus, has just kicked off. The exhibition explores the intersection of biology and machines, and will look at topics such as organic bionics, cybernetics, directed evolution, and whether we can live forever through digital means. It runs until June. As part of the Science Foundation Ireland's speaker series, Manjit Kumar, the author of Quantum, will be speaking in the science gallery on Tuesday the 10th of May. He'll be exploring the history and impact of quantum theory and looking at how it led to an epic intellectual debate between Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. The Burn and Bloom Festival takes place from April 29th to May 29th. The programme includes a range of talks and events related to biodiversity in the Burren limestone region of County Clare. You can get more information at burnandbloom.com. The Minefield International Festival Ideas is running in Dublin from Friday, April 29th to Sunday the 1st of May. There'll be kids' events, including a workshop making monsters with LED eyes, and there'll be plenty for adults too, including an introduction to DIY biology with geneticist Cahill Garvey. See minefield.ie for more information. And the Women in Technology and Science group is now accepting nominations for its Lifetime Achievement Award. The award will be presented to a woman considered to be an icon to others working in science, technology, engineering or maths in Ireland. Nominations close on the 20th of May, and you can get more information at (laughs) witsireland.ie. That's all for this episode of Cybernia. If you have an event you want to tell us about or any comments or suggestions you'd like to make, email us at podcast at cybernia.ie or you can follow us on Twitter at cybernia or visit us online at cybernia.ie. Thanks to all our contributors. Thanks to our producer, Gavin Byrne. Thanks to Near FM for the use of studio time and thanks to everyone for listening. (laughs) 